Scripture reading tonight will be 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 15 through 20. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is God's word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. Fellas in the back and in the front, we'll make sure that you get one. We're going to be looking at uh, the pastoral letters of Paul, uh, which were really not called the pastoral letters until about the 18th century. And uh, about the beginning, uh, about the, the, the second decade of the 1700s, they began to be known as the pastoral epistles because of the pastoral nature in which Paul is writing to a couple of his, uh, of his young men, Timothy and Titus. Think that? Yeah, I think we got everybody covered. Great. Thank you, fellas, for doing that. The Harlow men. Well done. Let's pray. Father, what great light you shed on our lives and illumine our path in the darkness in this life that we live by your presence and by your spirit and by your word. We believe with all of our heart that Jesus is the light of the world and that we too have become light through our good deeds so as to shine like a city on the hill. And how, how great a task, how, how great a privilege and honor it is to, to do that in such a way, Father, that, that we're not the ones getting the thanks, but you're getting the glory. We pray in this, for this endeavor, Father, to be more successful because of a, a more profound faith on our behalf, deepened in Your Word, Father, and, and, and deepened in our relationship, our, our faith in, in what it is that, that You have revealed Yourself to be through Your Word, Father, that, that You are our Creator, our Shepherd, You're our Father, our God, the one that provides you are you are the supreme value over everything in this life that we can possibly know you are the supreme value and so father as we we make a a a, a struggle to to study tonight to be good stewards of of this of this these words we're asking you to open our eyes and to, to give us open ears to see and to hear and to discern and to know and to grow, Father, and to be equipped for all of life and for righteousness. We pray to be more lovely and gracious in all that we do. We pray to be kind and merciful and gentle 
in all that we do. To this end, bless us, Father. We ask it with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. These uh, pastoral letters are uh, very dear to me. Mainly because I am the recipient of some great, great mentors in my life. I had the privilege of, of working with older ministers, uh, uh, some fellows that really didn't have anything to gain in their relationship with me except uh, 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 you know, a, a, a fellow friend. But they actually poured themselves into me and their knowledge and allowed me to, to ask any question and to, and to make a lot of mistakes in their presence and to love me and, and to, to protect me and to, to help me grow into whatever it is that God was, was trying to grow me into. And now that uh, uh, I'm, I'm old enough to, to be over half a century in, in age, the opportunities to mentor younger men have, have been uh, a great gift to me as well. And the things that we learn uh, that Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus are, are, are not just profound, but, but incredibly insightful as to what it means to, uh, to, to grow people up and to grow a church up into the likeness and conformity of Jesus. And so, uh, when you look at 1 Timothy, we're going to look at 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus tonight. 1 Timothy is a very personal letter. It's an incredibly uh, personal, uh, intimate letter written by Paul to Timothy, this young fellow that he has grown exceptionally fond of. He says over in 1 Corinthians, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, for this reason I'm going to send to you Timothy, my son whom I love who is faithful in the Lord, He will remind you of My way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Notice that, that Paul says that Timothy is able to remind the Corinthians of Paul's way of life, which indicates a certain kind of intimacy, a certain kind of closeness that Timothy and Paul have, have shared in, in ministry together, where Timothy, as a young guy, is able to see the way Paul teaches and to hear what he teaches and to see how he reacts in response to different circumstances that rise up in, in church work throughout the known world at that time. And it shows how much that Paul trusted him. And this probably is why he likens the relationship that he and Timothy have to, to that of a father and a son. He writes in Philippians chapter 2, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul is uh, is not only you know referring to him as a, as a fellow uh, uh, as a, as a son working with his father, but he kind of mixes the metaphors a little bit. And Paul speaks of him in another place as a brother and a fellow worker. Uh, Timothy is this younger man on whom Paul has this affection and would entrust with the important work of the kingdom of God. He will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we sent Timothy, who is that brother and co-worker, he's mixing those metaphors, in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. When Paul had something important that needed to be done, he could trust Timothy to do it. And the trust came from the interaction and the lifetime of working together they, they had shared. Paul will also tell the Philippians that he has no one quite like Timothy, who will take a genuine interest in their welfare. And Paul is so exceptionally close to Timothy that he writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. But by the time we get to 2 Timothy, this second letter is a, is a lot 
darker. It's much more somber in tone, as Paul indicates in, in his writing, that he believes that his death is somewhere right around the corner, that he's going to be put to death for maintaining his faith, and that that's not going to happen too far down the road. He says in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. Now, he's not writing to a church. He's writing to someone that he considers to be like a son to him. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which, Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. One of the, the, the preeminent scholars in the United States, a guy up at, at, at Trinity, uh, D.A. Carson writes, the letter is written in the shadow of the scaffold and is to be seen as what Paul, as what Paul considered to be most important in his last communication to a trusted subordinate. Which now brings us to Titus. The letter to Titus opens up with a longer than usual greeting than Paul has uh, normally written in, the, in, in his, his epistles. In Titus chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at His appointed season He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true Son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus is another one that Paul loved very much. And Paul has left Titus in Crete to set things in order in the church. And he urges Titus to take care of appointing elders in, in, in every town in, in verse 5 of chapter 1 and gives him instructions about the gospel. And what you find as he writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and Titus, who is in Crete, is a lot of pastoral themes. I want to give you four tonight. Obviously, we don't have time in a one-off kind of sermon to be able to delve into the great depth that we find in these, these, uh, these, these epistles. But one of the things that you find in both of these is, number one, to watch for doctrinally divisive people. People that will upset the church. People that will upset the confidence that people have in their salvation. That will upset people in the confidence that they have about their future. The confidence that people have in the way that they are to conduct themselves as children of light in the kingdom of light, having been transferred from the dominion of darkness and into a, a place where they witness the greatness and the goodness of God's grace before a watching community. And so Paul writes to Timothy in, in the first chapter beginning in verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. 
They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. You know, Paul had been around the block a few times and Paul knew about churches because he knew about people and he knew what people were like. He knew what was in their hearts. And churches were often hard places for unity because of controversy and speculations and arguments and debates about meaningless things that would chip chip away at the foundation of that church and its unity by creating chaos in that church. And in chapter 4, Paul addresses a few more issues. He says, you know, at the heart of these kinds of conversations are deceiving spirits. At the heart of these these teachings are, are demons. Teachings about abstaining from certain kinds of food or forbidding marriage are godless myths. And Paul was not quite the, the, the politically correct type, the old wives' tales. He would say the same thing to Timothy a little bit later on in the second chapter of Second Timothy. He'd say, keep reminding God's people of these things. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. You drop down to verse 23. says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Although beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Paul would say, yes, the mystery of godliness is great. It's as great as the mystery of the Incarnation. It's as great as the mystery of the love that springs from God's holiness that allowed Christ to come and to volunteer Himself. Here am I. Send me. Hebrews chapter 13. A body you have prepared for me to die on the cross for our sins. As great a mystery as that is that godliness springs from, Christianity, though, is a very practical daily lifestyle. A lifestyle that draws the strong and the weak and the vulnerable and the powerful together. It's about, it, it, it's about a lifestyle that draws people to God because of the grace that they see lived out among God's people. Christianity is to be practiced, number two. Paul gives Timothy instructions about widows and how the care of them is pleasing to God and how it can be accomplished in the church among the disciples of Jesus. That the vulnerable of society are to be drawn in into the community and not just drawn in on the fringe, but drawn into the very fabric, into the very core and the very center of what it means to be, to be disciples of Jesus and to be a church. He addresses slaves and their masters. At a time when people were wondering, how in the world are we supposed to, uh, 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 you know, how are we supposed to live in these kinds of relationships in the church? He says to Titus in chapter 2, he says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show how they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. I'm going to talk a great. Uh, uh, detail, I think, about how Christianity affected slavery in the ancient world when we get to Philemon. But Christianity was something that was to be practiced. It was a lifestyle. It was, it was relational. The problem of chasing riches into personal destruction and how, that would, how, how rich the, the, the affluent of these communities would pierce themselves with many griefs. Paul talks to Timothy and says, warn them about that. How older men and younger men and older women and younger women are to get along in the Christianity is to be practiced in relationship. 
And he says at the end of chapter 6, at the end of that first letter, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Number three, he says, you know, do not forget the grace that saves. It can be easy in ministry to forget about the power of grace at a couple of different levels. You can see how grace can bounce off of a hard heart. The message of the Gospel can bounce off of a calloused heart in such a way and never penetrate and never do its profound work in changing a human being. You can, you can easily forget about the power of, of, of grace when, when you see people who are being rebellious towards the kinds of changes that God is trying to bring into their life. It can be an easy thing to do when working with people whose lives are messy and complicated inside of the church. And that's why it's good to be reminded from time to time that God's grace is a transforming power. Paul reminds Timothy of that fact. Paul reminds Timothy that he, Paul, himself, was guilty of blaspheming. Of persecuting the church and of great violence. Yet the great sin that Paul was guilty of gave way to an even greater grace that was, in verse 14, abundantly, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, that was abundantly poured out on Paul. What Paul is trying to do for Timothy is to say, you know, when it comes to God's grace and the power of God's grace and, and the, 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 the salt and, and the light that the grace can be on the human heart in changing it. Do not forget what grace did to my own life. You know, Paul didn't say, you know, you know, I used to tell a couple of white lies every once in a while, you know, and I cheated on a test in rabbi school. And, you know, every once in a while, I did eat something that was not kosher. No, Paul talks much more profoundly and much more transparently about his sin. He says, you know, I blasphemed. I was a blasphemer. I persecuted the church that Christ was that Christ suffered and, and brutally was crucified for. I was a person of violence. Yet when you look at me, Timothy, what do you see? How the great sin gave way to the even greater grace that was abundantly poured on me. God did not save Paul in this chapter. Paul is not saying that God saved him to merely keep him out of condemnation or saved him to get him into heaven. God did not merely save Paul because God needed someone to preach to the Gentiles. Did God not have other Pauls out there someplace? God saved a person like Paul, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 1, to show the might of God's great mercy. That somebody that was as spiritually wretched and, and whose mind as greatly intellectual and intelligent as he was, Paul recognized that in his great intellect it had, it had taken him to a place where he was crucifying Jesus and murdering the members of the, that, that body who through faith were confessing Christ crucified. It was to show the might of God's great mercy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience. You remember in 
Acts chapter 22 when, when Paul is, is, is recounting what happened to him in the ninth chapter. And it's at that place that the voice of Christ on that road to Damascus says, why are you kicking against the goats? Which, you know, goats are goats are the things that, that are, when you're herding the oxen, when you're directing and steering the oxen, they're, they're the, the goats are, what are, are, are sending them in the right direction. And Jesus says, why are you kicking against the goats? All along, Christ had been trying to, to send Paul to the place of repentance and to the place of faith in the Gospel. He says, why are you kicking against the goats? The great patience. Display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. And for that reason, the Gospel was not something that Paul would ever be ashamed of. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. And of this Gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I have believed. And am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. In a passage that we read a lot at, at baptisms, Titus chapter 3, Titus is struggling with a lot of, of hard folk there on the island of Crete. And at the end, Paul begins to, to, to talk about, about that transformation. That how that grace saves people. It just completely changes them through space and time. He says, beginning in chapter 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You know, every once in a while, I think it's a good exercise to think about what you once were and what you have become in that grace. And had it not been for that grace, what you might have become without it. Well, not only is he talking to them about the need for, for godliness with, with uh, contentment to be great gain, that Christianity is a practice life in relationship and with, 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 with folk and, and with the way that you conduct yourself, and that it's the grace of God that saves and brings it all to fruition. 
but that the church is also a place that needs leaders. Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. What Paul is saying, what I've done for you, Timothy, you need to do for others so that they, as you have done for them, will do for others. And in that way, the gospel is taught and people are matured and people are mentored and there are leaders that rise up in the church. Because leading God's people requires more than just leadership skills. It also requires spiritual and moral examples. In other words, a spiritual dynamic integrity. And so when Paul addresses the qualities of these leaders, they're not qualifications. They are qualities. He is talking about moral character. Paul addresses these qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. He says they must be above reproach in the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, which I believe is a statement about his faithfulness to his wife in a sexually immoral place like the cities of the Roman world. He is to be temperate. He is to be self-controlled and respectable and hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage his own household well, see that his children uh, obey him with proper respect, not to be a recent convert, to have a good reputation with outsiders, that when people see him walking down the the, the, the street, they think good things. Titus has a list of qualities that are similar when it comes to this kind of leadership, Paul says, Titus, on Crete, look for men who are blameless and faithful to their wives, believing children who are not charged with being wild and unruly and disorderly in the community. They're not overbearing. That is, they don't lord it over the way that, that, uh, that, that, that non-spiritual leaders will lord it over their people. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. They're not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. They're upright holy and disciplined, men who hold firmly the trustworthy message, able to refute false doctrine. And although not an overseer, Timothy himself was told as, as an evangelist, as, 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 as a, a, a man who is sharing the gospel, you need to set an example for believers in speech and in life and, and in the way that you live and in faith and in purity. And he says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 15, be diligent in these matters, in the way that you conduct yourself, in the way that you are portraying Jesus in your life. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, how you're growing, how you are turning into an oak. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He says basically the same thing to Titus in chapter 2. In everything, set them, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then the last thing tonight, and very quickly, God's Word is priceless. That great passage that many of us were, were, were made to, to memorize as, as young children. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know that from uh, those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is, say it, 
God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. church needs leaders. The church needs people who are acquainted in a very, very profound, that are not just acquainted, but know very profoundly and intimately the Word of God. People who have dedicated themselves to, to, to godliness and understand that their faith is to be practiced on a daily basis, that there is, that there is a, a pragmatic side to Christianity that is not just philosophy and teaching and, and, a, and a mindset and a worldview and a set of values, but it's a way that we conduct ourselves because that's who we really are at, at, at the very core of our being. It's about being a church that understands that, that doctrine is incredibly important when it comes to maintaining unity. And is able to, to, to see that those, that those, those components, that Christ was, was crucified, that, that He was the, the Son of God incarnate. That all of, all of these pieces of the central core parts of the Gospel are the things that bind us together and make us a healthy and unified church. Would encourage you to spend some time with these pastoral letters over the next couple of days and just meditate on, on the other aspects of what it means to, uh, what Paul is talking about, what it means to be a minister and a faithful minister of, of God at that in these epistles. But right now, we want to praise God as a church, as a people who understand the importance of the gospel and have experienced its impact in our own lives who every day are being drawn closer to God because of the way that His Word speaks to us in our hearts. And to praise Him, to praise Him as one body, unified, not, not chipped away in our unity through divisiveness, through arguments, through, through speculations, through godless myths, and through, through genealogies and all of these different kinds of things that sound like wisdom but are really not that the wisdom of God is found in the cross, even though that's a stumbling block everywhere else, Paul would say to the church in Corinth. But in unity, in unity, we praise God. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God for His goodness to us.